Is Marijuana Legalization Working? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with David Clement. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with David Clement. David is the North American Affairs Manager for the Consumer Choice Center, a consumer advocacy group supporting lifestyle, freedom, innovation, privacy, science, and consumer choice. He previously was the research assistant to the Canada Research Chair in International Human Rights. He's also an alumnus of the Institute for Liberal Studies, and he has regularly been featured on the CBC, Global News, the Toronto Star, and various other major Canadian news outlets. David, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. In each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation leads us. Our question today is, is marijuana legalization working? So I'd like to toss it over to you for the stage setting in a second. Although this is a Canadian-centric episode, I think Canada is becoming an excellent case study on what works and doesn't work from regulation perspective. So, you know, I think the conversation will apply to all of our listeners. So let's start by saying, you know, this was supposed to be a fairy tale come true for proponents of consumer choice and drug legalization, right? Canada legalized marijuana, and now we have ultimate freedom, or, or maybe not quite so, right? So let's get into that. Let's start with explaining what the federal government truly legislated for marijuana legalization. So we're clear on exactly what legalization means here. Okay, yeah, that's actually a really good place to start. So the federal government with the with the Cannabis Act legalized recreational cannabis. And so that means that um, from when the act was legalized onward, it was recreationally kosher for you to, to consume cannabis. Um, that being said, with the act were a variety of other uh, regulations. So some of them were pre-existing. Um, so the, the things like production regulations, the, the uh, terms and conditions that licensed producers have to produce under, those largely came from the existing medical system. Uh, but on the consumer side, so things like the marketing advertising restrictions, the way in which the products can be branded, um, the information that is allowed to be broadcast to consumers about various products, what has to be on um, each individual item that is sold, how it's sold. Um, it's a very, very long list of uh, regulations that have been applied that, in my opinion, hamper the legal industry and make it more difficult uh, for the legal industry to keep up with the black market. And that's just the federal government. Right. Uh, because there's also a layer, uh, obviously, given the the uh, federal-provincial uh, divide in Canada, um, there is also a provincial layer here. And then just to make matters even, more, even worse, just when you couldn't think, you, you didn't think it was possible to add in more government um, there is actually, in many instances, local and municipal regulations that also apply. So it's very complex. There's this giant web um, of regulations, but generally in a nutshell, from taxation to advertising, marketing, uh, production regs, those things are, are held or, or, or handled and regulated by the federal government. So obviously, we're not going to sit here together and just read the thousands of pages of legislation. <laughs> but just to illustrate for listeners, why not give a few examples of what like, you know, at a high level, what the federal yep. government would be responsible for, like you can give one example, what a provincial government right might regulate, and then what a municipality might actually make a law about. Perfect. So federal level, uh, things like the tax rate, the excise tax rate for cannabis. Um, so that's traditionally what is understood as like the sin tax. Um, what the facilities look like that producers have to grow in. That's another, the clearance to actually enter the market. That's all done federally. Um, on the provincial level, that is really where the retail aspect comes into play. So what's the retail model? Who's allowed to own and operate a store? How many stores are there going to be? Um, what are those kind of rules and conditions? So that's handled by the provincial government. Um, so differences like New Brunswick is, uh, all handled by the province. So the province is the, uh, the only retail access point for consumers and just like it is for alcohol. 
Um, Ontario is a different model. Uh, Ontario is minus the online um, OCS is entirely private retail. Uh, and then you have mixed systems like in BC where you have both um, private and public. And then on the municipal level, um, the number one policy at the municipal level is just the ability to opt out. So there, an example would be in, in Ontario, communities are actually allowed to opt out of cannabis retail altogether and say no stores in our communities. Um, and so that is predominantly um, where the municipalities come into play is that having that opt out lever. So it's, it's mostly retail regulations for municipalities. Yes, but in many instances, actually, the province has um, limited a municipality's ability to add in additional zoning. So a lot of the provinces in their retail regulations have established province wide oh, you can't, you have to be X meters away from a school, X meters away from a church, X meters away from a park, or whatever else is, is added in there. Um, so it's not treated like, uh, like a restaurant or a bar that sells alcohol, where all of that would be handled by local bylaws or local zoning rules and just and just to clarify on on the opt-out thing for municipalities so this this may seem like an obvious point but before we start talking about a bunch of other things i want to make sure we have all the found because we'll probably mention it really fast later so so the opt-out thing would be for instance a municipality could not allow an actual for instance a store selling marijuana to open but obviously all the the federal rules would still apply like people in that town could still obviously own it and consume it and sell to each other uh within the the realm of the criminal law that's been established by the feds but but it's just sort of this storefront idea and what the probably like maybe even some public consumption bylaws too but we can get that later but that's the kind of stuff the municipality can opt out of and they can't actually go and say no you can't sell to your friend or something like that right uh well so my understanding so the answer to selling to your friend would be no um, that is illegal. Huh. Uh, so in in the context of you can gift things to your friend, but then again, it also depends where the cannabis is coming from and whether or not it's sold in its original package. And so, so the plot thickens. Yes. Yeah. The, <laughs> it does get does get a little gray. Um, but yeah, like, for example, where I live in Oakville, Ontario, the city council here said no cannabis retail stores. And so none are allowed to operate within um, the town limits, uh, that is a huge burden for consumers because they realistically have to drive to Burlington or elsewhere, um, which is another city away, uh, in order to go into a retail store or they have to order online and wait three to five business days. And all of that exists with the black market still ready, willing, and able to provide you what you need at a moment's notice. And so obviously in communities that opt out, uh, it, it sends a pretty clear signal to whomever's operating in the black market that, hey guys, like this is the perfect area for you to, uh, perfect area for black market dealers to operate in because they're going to fill a void. Um, and we know that consumer demand was there because consumer demand was there prior to cannabis being legal at all. Um, and so you see these trends start to develop where, yes, we are chipping away at the, the prevalence of the black market, but not nearly at the rate we could and not nearly at the rate we should be. All that to say, I mean, like we've just established that the word legalization is a, is a pretty burdened word in this country already, right? That this isn't a double sided piece of paper the parliament passed clearly. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and some who have been in the advocacy space on this for a long time really don't. They see it as prohibition 2.0. I'm not quite uh, i'm not quite as cynical as they are mm. uh, but there are some serious penalties if you are caught with what is deemed illicit cannabis there are serious penalties if you're carrying more than 30 grams on your person things like that um which i think are ridiculous on their face but they're even more ridiculous when we compare cannabis to alcohol because i can go to the lcbo which is run by the government buy 30 bottles of whiskey which is way more than the lethal dose of, of whiskey <laughs> to say the have least. it in my, yeah, have it in my car, get pulled over. And it's just a legitimate 
legal purchase. Right. Where if I have that 31st gram of cannabis, uh, that opens a whole new world of legal problems um, that are very similar to when cannabis was illegal. So it's not just like a slap on the wrist. Some of these fines are quite high. Some of them are as far as things like trafficking charges where you're in a, a different it's a different ball game right. um, once you're in that realm and there are some serious penalties to those types of offenses. So uh, yeah, it, 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 I wish that the, the legalization bill at the federal level would have been more along the lines of how we treated um, alcohol in terms of just saying, okay, well it's legal now and provinces basically have the task of figuring out, okay, well how are you going to sell it and all of these other things and, what the marketing and branding restrictions are and all of those things. Unfortunately, much of that was decided at the federal level and a lot of it was heavily paternalistic to start. And so what groups like the consumer choice center do is spend a lot of time trying to peel away those heavy handed restrictions, trying to peel back some of these really paternalistic laws um, that, it, I would go as far as they ruin the fun of legalization um, and they kind of ruin the purpose because right. part, part of the government's purpose was to uh, get rid of the black market. But if you handcuff the legal market, obviously the black market is still going to thrive as well. There's also limitations on like if you can grow your own plants, but then there's also a certain like limit on that. I think I think that's another thing in the criminal code now, too. Yes. Yes. So federally, you, it is legal for you to grow your own plants. But some provinces have superseded, have have basically trumped that and said, no, it's not legal for you to grow your own plants. Um, all while the Supreme Court has ruled that if you're a medical patient, that you have the legal right to grow your own plants. Um, so, and, and, and the limit is, is traditionally four plant. It, it is four plants, um, uh, for medical patients. It's way, way more than that upwards of 90 to hundred plants. Um, so much more, uh, but yeah, it's, it's very complicated. It, it should more closely resemble growing tomatoes, um, as opposed to treating it like some sort of controlled substance. Um, which is more along the lines of how the federal government has approached this. And, and something we'll probably get into a little later, too, but I, I still think it's good that we're painting sort of the broad brush at the top. Another wrinkle, I guess, is that provinces also, they get they regulate interprovincial commerce, too, right? So this is a whole other issue, I think. Well, yes. Um, so that there's a couple issues here. So interprovincial commerce in Canada is, is already a bit of a boondoggle because of the Como case and that not going the way of consumers. Um, the issue with cannabis, and this is something that uh, we've I've written on, it's something that I testified in front of the Senate's Budgetary Committee uh, on the last federal budget was, is the federal government established an excise tax sticker system for cannabis that resembles tobacco. So when you buy a legal product, it has a holographic, uh, sticker on it that certifies that it's legal. Um, and that also certifies that the excise tax has been paid. Um, unfortunately, those are handed out and stamped provincially. And so what that means is once a product is stamped for final sale, it can't move between provinces. Right. So let's say you own a retail store in Calgary and you also own a retail store in um, in Ontario and there's an extra, you have extra product that you want to move from one of your stores to the other. You can't do that. That's, that's illegal. Um, you end up landlocking product all across the country where you can't have the, the, the purpose of applying market forces to this is to allow for the market to add in that dynamic feature of, of responding to consumer demand in a more proactive way. And the excise tax sticker acts as a, um, as a, it's, it's almost like the hand of the central planner stopping, uh, everything from adjusting accordingly. And what's crazy is that it isn't, it doesn't just apply for private retailers. It also applies for government retailers. Mm. So the Ontario cannabis store run by the province can't phone up the new, the, the Brunswick, um, cannabis retail outlet, which is 
also provincial, right. and say, hey, guys, I realize you, ha- you may have extra this. Can we get some? Uh, and buy it off them. They can't do that because as soon as the product is stamped, it's stuck in whatever province it was stamped for. So um, we don't really – as much as we have interprovincial commerce problems in Canada, we don't treat a lot of other legal products like this other than tobacco where they're stamped to be sold only in that province. Um, so that creates a world of problems obviously because – the market has to respond to consumer demand that rapidly shifts based on a variety of factors. And so it really does limit retailers' ability to have product variety that meets what consumers want, um, as well as deciding on what to do with old inventory, um, because there's got to be a way to, to distribute older inventory. And if there are maybe jurisdictions or retailers who could use it, there should be some mechanism for sale. Uh, between them, but unfortunately, there isn't. And, and a, another wrinkle I, I read in some of your writings that um, there's been a failure to distinguish between like CBD and THC products, and you say that creates yes. a whole other set of issues. So why don't you go ahead and, and run with that? Because I think I thought that was very interesting when I was reading your stuff on that. Yeah. So I think this is. Uh, I don't know if it's the biggest issue with how cannabis has been legalized, but it is certainly the most obvious of the mistakes, and so. For people who are listening who maybe don't understand um, how the, the, the anatomy of, of cannabis products, uh, the best way to describe it is you have cannabis products with THC. THC is the, the, uh, the part that makes you high, um, or as I would say, the fun part. Um, then you have CBD, which is uh, more of the therapeutic side, not that it's exclusive because THC can be used for medicinal pers- pur- uh, purposes as well. Uh, but CBD is traditionally used for things like chronic pain, swelling, um, various other ailments. The thing here is that CBD does not impair your judgment. It is not psychoactive. It is not intoxicating. Um, so I'll use intoxicating as a catch-all term there. Um, so basically what the federal government did is it dis- it determined that um, everything made from the cannabis plant falls under cannabis regulations, which would li- which would be like saying uh, anything created from fermented barley is alcohol, regardless of whether or not it has alcohol in it. Mm. So we already have a process or framework in the in every province to treat dealcoholized beer or dealcoholized wine differently than products with alcohol in them right like you can go into a, a, a loblaws we can do canadian references here and like yeah a kid could literally walk in i think and just buy some pc non-alcoholic beer right and you're done yeah 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 it's just basically dealcoholized barley water right um uh, and you can get that um i don't know why you would but some people do the problem here is that we the federal government didn't differentiate between for the most part did not differentiate between intoxicating cannabis products and non-intoxicating cannabis products. And that's a huge problem because if you're going to make a justification for having some regulations for THC products because it is an intoxicant and you want to have some kind of arm's length to ensure that youth don't have access and there isn't abuse and all of those things, I can understand those arguments. But whatever those arguments are, they don't apply to CBD. Right. Just like the arguments for alcohol control – don't apply to products that don't have alcohol in them. Just treating it like, you know, blanket statement all as just marijuana. That causes a problem, but both on like a, a social side, if people want to use it them for different uses, whether they're THC yeah. products or CBD products, but also again, back to our discussion before, that also causes a problem on the economic side, right? I'm sure you're limiting entrepreneurs to some degree as well, if they just want to get into an industry where you're doing CBD products or, or what have yeah, you. And I can give you an example. An example would be there is an emerging market predominantly in the U.S., of CBD sports drinks. So recovery sports drinks that have CBD in it, it helps with swelling and and the healing process after strenuous exercise. Those products have to be sold through licensed retailers here with cannabis products. So you either order them online and wait, or you go to the, the, the in, depending on your province, the few retail outlets that exist, which really makes these products difficult to have access to. When in reality, these things should be able to be sold at Walmart or Max or anywhere else that sells anything with caffeine in it or 
insert any other chemical that five we, hour energy stuff or whatever. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or na- natural health food stores. Right. Like you just all you all the government would need to do is establish a threshold of THC. Whatever that is, everything under it is non-intoxicating and the rules don't apply. That would be my argument um, so that you could see this widespread availability of CBD products uh, for the people who want access to them but don't necessarily want high THC um, or that intoxicating feature. Because there are a variety of consumers who, who just like a variety of consumers who prefer light beer over 40% whiskey. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's just part of that consumer trend. Um, so I have long argued that that was one of the biggest mistakes made at the federal level uh, and something that I've kind of been regularly trying to remind the government that they can still fix um, simply by just establishing that threshold and then removing CBD products from the Cannabis Act altogether. And, and another wrinkle I read in some of your writings here was that so so there's the whole industry of like edibles, right? Yep. And then I, if I'm if I remember this correctly, if I take my note correctly, there there actually is statements and regulation around edibles looking like other food or or consumables, and and that's 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 odd to me, I guess. Unless I read that wrong, it's like well, they you have to eat them and consume them, so having them not look like food that that's a that's a harder yeah. that's a hard task, right? Yeah. So there's there are real limits on what um, what cannabis edibles can look like, um, and what they can taste like and what can be added to them. The purpose of this is to protect youth from access. And while I understand that these stores are age gated, so you can't, you can't even, if you're a parent, you can't stop at your local cannabis retailer and bring your child into the store. It's not like a alcohol outlet where you're allowed to make purchases with minors alongside you. <laughs> let's just st- let's stop and appreciate that for a second. That they're they're a scene in Canada at the uh, at the government in Ontario, I should say, at the government controlled yeah. alcohol store. You can have your four year old holding your hand while you get the little LCBO shopping cart and start loading yes. gallons of whiskey in your cart. That's all okay. Yes, of course. Um, but you can't do that for cannabis, which right. makes so many of these youth access arguments really strange because they're not even allowed in the store. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, people will talk about like, oh, well, they have to be packaged a certain way. Uh, well, I mean, no youth are even seeing these items until after they're bought. Um, no, like, well, we have to be careful on, on if they too, too closely resemble um, other food items. Like, what do we do then? It's like, well, again, they're only accessible to youth after they're purchased. Um, so it's, it's very strange that that argument continues to, to hold water because we know that they can't get in the stores. And so the only access they would have to it is access from those who are either buying it for them illegally, which is certainly should be frowned upon, or they see it in their houses. Um, very similarly to how children see alcohol in their parents' house, if they have a wine rack or a liquor cabinet. Um, we, we, for alcohol, we just defer to, to parents to right. make sure that they handle that. Right. Um, so yeah, there, there are some limits on, on what, um, those products can look like. There's also limits on how much, uh, THC can actually be in each package. Um, so it is, it's a 10 milligram limit. So you're not going to be able to buy any legal cannabis product, um, with over 10 milligrams of cannabis per package. Um, this is actually, in my opinion, another huge oversight. Um, and it comes down to a very finite technicality is the wording per package rather than per unit. Right. Um, I'm generally opposed to a 10 milligram per unit threshold. Uh, but if we were to have one, let's say we go with that. That being said, I think I should be able to buy product in bulk so let's say we're talking about mints i should be able to buy more than 10 milligrams of of thc total in a package and they can just be 10 milligram units within that package so all of that 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 idea is all illegal right now um so that's why if you are buying mints um the the total milligrams of 
of THC per package will never exceed 10 milligrams um, or whatever else you're buying. If it's uh, there are chocolates that are available and some other items, you're never going to get more than 10 milligrams per package, which I think is silly because you could still protect people from overindulging with a unit maximum um, without the onerous uh, shopping experience of having to buy in bulk by buying rather than being able to buy two, four, you have to buy four, six packs right? Um, because, because two fours are illegal. Um, or rather than being able to buy a 26 er of whiskey, you have to buy them in the individual mini baby bottles. Um, that would be such a terrible consumer experience for alcohol. And I think generally speaking, most consumers would think that that was ridiculous Unfortunately for cannabis, that's the experience that consumers have to go through when they buy these uh, products on the legal market. And I say with the caveat on the legal market because the illegal market will provide already provides consumers milligram or THC milligram counts well above 10, 10 milligrams. Um, all sorts of different product variety, delivery options to your door, right. uh, bulk order discounts. I mean, you name it. It's all out there on the black market, readily accessible. And so uh, and the reason I bring that up is even if you don't like the arguments that I'm making because you're hesitant to cannabis, if you want the black market to go away, you have to allow the legal market to compete. And so much as you may not like it, Relaxing these regulations does serve the purpose of ensuring that youth don't have access because it's way harder to get legal. It's way harder for youth to get legal cannabis than illegal cannabis, uh, and it also actively pushes uh, back against the black market, which, in some senses, could just be ordinary folks selling cannabis to other people. Not dangerous. They're just, just. It's like not a, a hobby is the wrong way to put it, but they're not violent criminals. But in some instances, they are, and they're they use those funds to feed um, other very dangerous criminal activities and things like that. And so, if you want to win that fight, um, I would argue that my my arguments um, are even more important because the only way you're ever going to have the legal market compete with the black market is to allow for it to actually compete by pulling back some of these silly regulations and um, and making sure that it is as consumer focused as possible. Because ultimately, these are these people are in, in in all senses of the word, the end users of this stuff. So if, if they want, as you were saying before, the amount that they want, whether they're buying three, four, six packs versus one 24 pack, I like that analogy you did. In, in alcohol yeah. they will do it it's not as if they go oh shoot you know <laughs> this is this yeah. is just a six pack and i wanted 24 beers so I, I guess i can't do that today same same logic applies when it comes to cannabis is that people are going to buy yeah. the amount they want and as you said uh legal or illegally yeah and and the harder you make it to buy the amount that they want or the product variety that they want the more likely they're going to find it illegally um, and that's especially true for consumers who were consuming cannabis prior to legalization. We've seen the legal market really, really struggle to bring those people into the legal market and and persuade them to switch from how they were buying it before to buying it through legal retailers or the OCS. Um, so it's even more important for those, um, let's call them legacy consumers, um, is that you have to make the legal market has to make a convincing pitch to get them to move. Um, and if they're not going to make a convincing pitch, they're just going to continue to do what they've always done right? and buy illegally. And I actually think that's a good place to take our break. So we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with David Clement today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Daniel Beer, Danny Leroy, and Elizabeth Aragona. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task.
Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with David Clement today. So, David, I think the first half of our conversation was really good. We provide the backdrop for what the sort of legislative landscape, if you will, and regulatory landscape, if you will, looks like for uh, cannabis in Canada and, and even at the provincial level, too. Um, one thing that I sort of and I'm not sure if you wrote a specific article on, on, on this. And if you did, just just let me know. I'd love to read it. But but either way, I've I, I, a theme that I've seen woven through a lot of what you've written about the topic, even if you're addressing other things, is the fact that all of this sort of has like spillover if you effects if you will onto people that just have nothing to do with being either direct consumers or just even you know tr trying to like sell plants or or whatever let me give you a concrete example like so for instance the ontario government uh was ha was having discussions around banning public consumption and mm -hmm. and you were t and you talk about one of your articles how this is ultimately at the end of the day will if we're not careful, disproportionately affect renters, right? Like if, if mm -hmm. you can't, if you, you, everyone can have a smoke in their backyard now, if they're renting a house, you can't smoke in the house. That's just a general rule in, in yep. now everywhere, but you can go outside in the back and, and smoke a cigarette. But if we're not careful with the regulations is what I ascertained from this article is like, if, if you're, you know, consuming in public and you're kind of outside, can your neighbor call on you for, for smoking marijuana? And then you're not going to go in the house because you don't own the house. So it's very odd. So it's the, what you bring up is actually one of our two biggest policy wins in Ontario. Um, so in the transition from the previous government to the new government, um, it was generally understood that all forms of public consumption of cannabis were going to be illegal. Uh, in the same way that alcohol consumption on sidewalks or in parks and all of that jazz is illegal. Right. Uh, so if you were caught smoking cannabis outside, you could be fined for it. Um, we met with the government. I actually testified in front of the social committee um, at Queen's Park in Toronto and made a very simple argument, which was if you criminalize outdoor all forms of outdoor consumption – you basically write all low-income or even medium-income Ontarians out of legalization. And the reason I say that is because if you rent your home, um, more often than not, you are not allowed to smoke anything inside. Um, and that's understandable. I mean, it's somebody else's property. They don't want you smoking in, in it and damaging it. So if you're a renter and you can't smoke in your home, and you can't smoke outside of your home, and there are no commercial places to consume cannabis legally, like a lounge, well then, where can you smoke? Right. Nowhere. Every every instance in which you would smoke cannabis would be illegal. Um, and so, luckily, the, the Ford government listened to that concern and basically uh, changed their approach and said that we, that in Ontario, you are allowed to smoke cannabis anywhere where you are allowed to smoke tobacco. Um, so I thought that that was a very fair compromise. It ensures some equity uh, between um, consumers based on their income class. Um, and I, as a caveat, I say low and medium income Ontarians, but in today's housing market, it's way more it's a lot more than that it's a right. lot harder to, uh, to own a house today than, right. than that it's not just low-income uh, ontarians who, who who are renting um so yeah it's uh, so they, they basically streamlined it with uh cigarette smoking um so not near parks um like not near children's parks or schools and things like that all appropriate um restrictions i think in my mind um while allowing for people to uh, consume outside, so on sidewalks or elsewhere, um, and so that was a that was a huge, huge policy win for us in Ontario. Something we're we're pretty proud about, mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah, and and like I mean, Ontario was safe from that one, but even though this did not happen in Ontario, it still gives the flavor of just how delicate that line is between. I guess what we'll call a good and streamlined path on, of legalization versus a, yep. a mess, right? I mean, like, again, like I said, it's a victory and it's excellent that that happened, but it, it still demonstrates the sensitivity of this whole thing, how easily it can just get stupid and people aren't enjoying legalization or, or using it or it's not doing what it is supposed to do. We're, we're back to people either in, in illegal markets or just saying, ah, forget it. Like this whole legal thing doesn't work. And then, then where are we at? Back to square one. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And so... Um, you, what you see is, and, and this has decreased a little bit over time, uh, but I still very much think that it is why we have as many issues um, as we do, 
is you have that prohibition mentality still. Right. Um, so it's like, oh, fine, we're going to legalize, but we're going to keep these little trinkets of prohibition around, like letting communities opt out of retail, which is just so ridiculous. Right. Um, or having severe penalties for having a 31st gram of cannabis on you or um, all sorts of other restrictions like that. And so you have this prohibition mentality, um, which is still present and still drives public policy um, and is something that we have to actively push back against almost at every instance of, of new policy or instance of regulation um, because there are so many examples of um, of bad policy that has terrible externalities that regulators just don't see coming. Um, like, what what happens for for renters in a scenario where you can't smoke um, outside anywhere? And so, yeah, that's that's the job in the, the the flag that we have to carry is is to consistently point those out at every moment and say, hold on a second, did you think about this? Did you think about this? And luckily, we've had some some pretty big wins uh, in that regard uh, on cannabis policy in Canada. So we're we're happy with the progress, but it's still it's still an upward fight. And and actually, I think that's a good way to, to segue into something else, which is we talked a lot about like um effectively what we'll, we might call legislative botches or the legislative regime around this. What what no matter what government level it's at, but when things get to the bureaucratic area, and you've written about this as well, I in one of your articles I I read that day, you're talking about. So Health Canada and it's right and how it starts making bureaucratic decisions around how people can, for instance, apply and get their license to, to manufacture products that yep. have to do with cannabis. So uh, maybe you can get a bit into that. But one of the things that I found very interesting is that I guess they have a lot of control there, even with application processes and things like that, that yep. can severely impact and, and quite frankly, destroy some economic wealth or activity that could be built. Yeah. So basically what happened was. Um, and, and I'll spare you too much of the history, but I'll give you some of the backstory. So under the Harper government, medical cannabis was um, reluctantly legal. And the Harper government created very, very strict production regulations. And so cannabis is produced or was produced in a manner that more closely resembled how pharmaceuticals are produced. So back at that point, we're talking like deep security clearances with the RCMP, um, a very, very strict production facility regulations in terms of who can come in and who can come out. Um, as crazy as fingerprint scans on the doors. Like <laughs> you would, you would think that they were like mass producing heroin Right, is how regulated and strict it was. Um, and th- so the legal, the legal medical market kind of chipped away and, and 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 built up through that regime the problem was is that tra- in transitioning from medical to recreational the current government didn't do enough or didn't do really much to pull apart those regulations um, to allow for these manufacturers to produce at for the recreational market and so this had two problems early on it, it created shortages because the legal industry couldn't operate at scale. So they couldn't, under those very strict regulations before, go from producing, I'm going to simplify, let's say 10, uh, 10 tons to 100 tons. Um, just the, the bureaucratic loopholes of applying for extra permits to have more square footage and all of that jazz is very difficult. Uh, so that was one problem. And the second is it acted, and I think that this is maybe even more important, is it acted as a barrier to entry for new entrepreneurs. Right. Because this should be something where new entrepreneurs can come in and say, okay, great, this is legal. I want to, just like I would want to, let's say, open up a boutique um, whiskey distillery, um, or if you look at the craft beer kind of explosion across Canada, right. all of these interesting, unique um, craft breweries pop up. Uh, they do small batch stuff. They experiment all sorts of weird flavors. Uh, really cool experience. Most of that is very difficult in the cannabis space because the barrier to entry is just so high. Right, and so. Um, what I had argued for back then was to really peel back a lot of those regulations and to put it in, in as, as simple terms as possible. The regulations looked like 
pharmaceutical grade regulations. And so very strict, super heavy focus on compliance. What they should look like is food grade. So how we produce food. Um, that would be a much more appropriate regulatory model uh, for where the cannabis uh, production regulations should be. And so I've continuously beat that drum uh, that that those regulations need to be scaled back, that we no, no, we no longer need to look at cannabis as if it's some, uh, some pharmaceutical that needs heavy regulation. This is, in the recreational side, a consumer product that is significantly less uh, dangerous than other products that are way less regulated, whether it be alcohol or over-the-counter drugs like Advil or Tylenol. And so, yeah, that the, on the on the Health Canada side, the production regs have been a huge hurdle. Um, one for existing players, which is important, uh, less so now, uh, but more importantly, it's been a huge barrier to entry. And we want to see a thriving industry that has boutique uh, boutique shops that produce small batch stuff. You want to see people experiment. You want to see um, that kind of entrepreneurial spirit added into the market uh, and unfortunately on the production side that has been limited by how heavy-handed some of these regulations have been yeah and if i remember correctly in one of the articles you pointed out that there was actually a, maybe it still exists today but you, you point out this application prerequisite where the people applying for the application to produce the products needed to actually have their facilities already like established or something like that which if that's the case then that's not the way if anyone knows about being an entrepreneur, that's usually not the way it works. It's not like, okay, I have all my money dumped into this stuff here, and, and now yes. I'm going to get my license. You need some certainty to get investors to have a business plan. Da, 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 da. Exactly. Yeah, and we're getting a little bit into the weeds here, but I think that you, what you bring up is a perfect example of how backwards they got it. So essentially, they changed some of the regulations to say, all right, when you submit your application, you already have to have your facility built. And ready to produce. Right. And so the if I put my bureaucracy hat on, the the mindset there was, well, we want people who are ready to go right away as soon as they get approval. And when you hear that, you're like, okay, well, maybe that makes sense. But then if you look at this in, ter in terms of how any business operates, who is going to be able to go out and get investors to give you money to build a facility before you have your license to grow. Right. Incredibly difficult. Um, unless you have capital that you can put up as collateral, um, which means unless you already are very, very established um, and are willing to take an exceptional risk, it's incredibly difficult to the ent enter the market because you can't get investors to invest in you knowing that, well, if your Health, app Health Canada application goes the other way, what happens? You're you're left with a production-ready facility that you're not legally allowed to grow in, uh, and so that very much dissuades entrepreneurs from entering in the space, which is just just bad, bad public policy, um, and it just flies in the face of how we treat anything else. Because um, for any, even other regulated goods, like you you can get a you can get a license for other businesses. Uh, let's say it's like a restaurant, you can get that um, without going through all of these crazy hoops and hurdles that we apply for uh, for cannabis. And so, um, yeah, just one example of how backwards Health Canada had got, uh, how backwards Health Canada had approached that. Um, and then you have the long list of externalities that that arise from uh, from that mistake, right? Yeah, and again, as you said, it's a good illustration not not only because of what you said, but also because there's a legislation angle to this, as I was saying before. But then there's a whole bureaucratic story that people often tend to forget, right? And then when there's 16 different bullet points on a regulation list with subsections and A through Z and all this, it's yep. like there's a lot of room for things to go wrong, even just in an application process. So I still think it's a great example. We're going to shift gears a little bit here, though. I want to talk about branding and advertising. Like, so basically, let's get really into like the the business end of, of the, the conversation of legalization in this country so i took a few notes here you know so this is everything from package regulations for what are you know 
um, proposed to the public or passed through legislation for what would appear to be wholesome reasons, right? Like we don't want, you know, on a cigarette package, for instance, some guy saying, hey, like, look, look at me, I've smoked and now I've, I've lived an extra 50 years. These are always the weird yeah. fears people have in their head when they think package regulation. But ultimately, things like this can harm consumer decision making and education along with for instance apparently you can't advertise prices you can't sponsor events as a marijuana company you can't you, you can't officially use testimonials and endorsements like this is all stuff about brand building and supposedly creating public trust and what I guess a lot of people don't understand is when you build a brand, it's actually something that you can turn around and blame after if something goes wrong. So it's good to have a brand, but people can't even build a brand, it seems, with some of the basic marketing tricks in the book here. And it goes so far as you can't even associate your product with any lifestyle. Really? That's that's broad. Yeah. So I'll give you a hilarious example of how ridiculous that is when it's applied. The government of New Brunswick on its web website, because the government is the only seller of cannabis in New Brunswick, had a woman doing yoga, fairly innocent. Yeah, that was that was prohibited. That's a lifestyle. You're not allowed to do that. Um, so they got slapped on the wrist by Health Canada, and and were told, no, 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 that is promoting a lifestyle. You're not allowed to do that. And so the government, like one government body, can't even sort out how to comply with how strict these rules are. Right, and a lot of this comes down to what I would say is a false conception of the importance of marketing and branding. So the people who are in favor of these very paternalistic laws, so outside of the fact that we're talking about adults, I'm an adult, leave me alone, get your like let's get the nanny state out of this, right. like go away. For me, that's a convincing enough argument. It's just like I'm an adult. Leave me alone. I get to make my own decisions. Um, I don't like. I want the package to be able to tell me what the desired impact is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think those are all convincing arguments. That said, back to the the misconception is these paternalists or the public health lobby or however we describe them view marketing and branding as a wolf and a sheep. Consumers are the sheep and companies are wolves, basically quietly trying to sneak up on them to, to pull the wool over their eyes and, and um, do deceivious or, or nefarious things. Um, and so they view these marketing restrictions as, as consumer protection, right? We're protecting people from the big bad company that's going to try and sell them things that they don't want. I don't view it that way. Uh, I don't view it that way because marketing and branding allows for companies to explain, one, the value of their product, uh, but more importantly with cannabis, the desired impact of their product. So it's actually illegal for a cannabis company anywhere on the marketing or branding or packaging to actually say what the product is going to do. Um, so you couldn't say, like, great for headaches or – uh, good for aches and pains, or good for chilling out with your friends. Um, and that might sound silly, but if we look at how alcohol is branded, um, so you think of like a low, like the low carb beer craze, right? How are how are all of those beers advertised? With CrossFitters, with people doing triathlons, they've established brand awareness for people who are health conscious. And very, very concerned about caloric intake and carbs and things like that. And they've lumped that together with um, with fitness, which is totally appropriate. And that conveys knowledge to consumers and makes for more informed consumer decisions. And so uh, and, uh, an example that you could have is you could have a low THC brand brand itself in that way where it associates itself with a particular lifestyle or with certain activities to say, Hey, this is, this is the cannabis product for you. If you want to consume something that isn't going to put you on the couch for eight hours, um, all of those things are prohibited. Um, and that's a real disservice to consumers because for all consumers, almost everybody is ignorant, right? The black market, except for some very sophisticated aspects of it. If you ask anyone 
if you asked anyone two years ago, you know, your buddy who occasionally buys pot illegally, and you said, hey, what is it that you're smoking? They, their response is always the good stuff. Oh, what is the good stuff? Like what percentage of THC is in it? I don't know. What strain is it? I don't know. So you have this consumer base who don't who know that they like a particular product, but don't have all of the knowledge that they should have in terms of making informed decisions. And marketing and branding is a very easy avenue for them to now know, oh, I actually really like this strain and a lower THC because I get too sleepy if I have the higher THC version. So this is the product class that I like. This is what agrees with me the most. Rather than having someone walk in and be like, I have no idea what I'm going to purchase. I have no brand awareness because brands cannot advertise in any serious way. Um, So I I, I look at the screen because I'm not allowed in the retail stores. I'm not allowed to touch any of the products. Uh, So I look at the screen and I look at the product names and I basically make my decision on two factors, the CBD content and the THC content, and that's it. Um, And so imagine buying wine and your only distinctive characteristics are, is it red wine? Is it white wine? And what's the alcohol content? And anyone who is a fan of wine like myself knows that there is a very big difference between a Pinot Grigio or a Chardonnay or a Mousquet or on the red side, a Merlot or a Bordeaux. And like anyone who actually consumes those things in any serious way has preferences. And marketing, branding, and, and the consumer awareness that comes from that is what allows for us to pick products based on our preferences. Oh, yeah. I mean, like wine's a good example, right? That little uh, label or paragraph that everyone reads on a wine label, this goes well with this. It'll have this in your evening. Da, 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 da. Like yes. that, that's not government mandated descriptions. Those are marketing and advertising packaging. That's what that is. It's helping you decide yes. what kind of wine you want to go with your steak that night. And on the marketing and branding restrictions, there are two important side conversations here. So the first one is if you don't, you're hesitant to cannabis and you don't like it, but you want the legal market to beat the black market, you need to empower the legal market to attract these existing adult consumers. Right. You have to give them the tools or you have to give them the opportunity to use the tools to attract these existing consumers from the black market to the legal market. And how are you supposed to do that if you can't appropriately market and brand your product or create any type of brand loyalty and awareness. So you're really limiting the legal market uh, in the, in, in, on that front. And the second is on a national scale and a Canadian scale, and this is something that I've been particularly irritated with the Trudeau government about, is Canada was a first mover when it comes to cannabis. I'm of the opinion that cannabis legalization uh, within my lifetime, we will have a global market. Uh, it will be accessible in the same way that alcohol is. You'll have large brands like you buy Dutch beer in Canada. You you buy Canadian beer in England, etc. Um, the restrictions on advertising and marketing, or even production regulations, that limit Canadian uh, firms from really building themselves will only hurt them in the in the in the uh, scope of a global market because we know that US cannabis producers are not going to be plain packaged that would be a violation under the constitution it's not going to happen we know that they're going to be allowed to have modest forms of marketing branding and awareness and so not that i view industry very often in a kind of nationalistic sense because that makes me feel icky um, <laughs> right, right. But in terms of, I mean, the 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 government is is a champion for Canadian industry on all sorts of other files. Right. Why were they not a champion for the legal cannabis space? Um, and why have they not created a scenario where legal Canadian uh, licensed producers could become those large multinational? Uh, players in whatever the global cannabis space is where they can actually Canada can't the, the cannabis industry isn't just something to serve the, the domestic market. It could be something to serve the international market. If we allow for it to prepare 
um, and we deregulate it so that when the time comes, it can act on that and, and start to spread through the United States and various other countries who are going to legalize. And there is some of this, but it's all on the medical side. Right. Um, and so my worry is that once recreational legalization happens widespread in the United States, a lot of these national cannabis brands in Canada are going to be pushed aside because the regulatory framework in the U.S. is just so much more open um, that it's going to be easier for them to thrive in the U.S. And and a lot of these companies are going to suffer as a result. So um, I'm not one to make like, oh, you got to beat the buy Canadian drum. That that type of stuff always bothers me. But generally speaking, the federal government is supposed to champion Canadian industry abroad and try to empower our businesses to succeed on the global level. I don't think that the Trudeau government has done that. I don't think I don't think they've patted themselves enough on the back internationally about the 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 courage it took to legalize. I think they should do more of that. Uh, and I think they should advocate on behalf of the industry internationally, like we do for Canadian oil or like we do for Canadian beef or various other products that we have no issue internationally saying, yeah, you should buy our beef because it's great. Our our, our Alberta cattlemen make great products and we're happy to supply great beef products to the world. Insert cannabis into that equation. I think that that should be totally appropriate. And yet for some reason they don't do that. Um, and I might be admittedly might be a little starry eyed in terms of what the future may hold. Um, some people don't think that legalization is something that we're going to see um, as widespread as I think we are. Um, but I would like to see the government do a better job of, deregulating our domestic market, one, obviously, to better meet the demands of domestic consumers, but two, to prepare itself to, to play in the global arena when the time comes, um, like, like we do with other products, um, and championing them when, when appropriate. And so um, that's, that's very much a down-the-road discussion in terms of where things will go, uh, but I do think it's a, that's an important point in terms of why these regulations matter in the domestic contents, co context, sorry, uh, but they also matter in the context of whatever the future global market looks like. And uh, our time is winding down a little bit here. So before we, we get to an actual wrap up of the episode, I, I just want to ask you as one of our one of our last questions here. So you spend a lot of time in this space. What what's the ultimate consumer response to this in your view? I'm not sure if you have stats, but even your feeling is good here. Like in your opinion, does does the public in Ontario and Canada actively support loosening of regulations and, and the things we're talking about here today or are they kind of okay with the regulations uh while, while still wanting access to cannabis like of course we always know that there's going to be a certain percentage that is actively lobbying against this whole thing to begin with but yeah putting course. putting them aside let's say the people that are like yeah i'm okay with it legal how, what's your feeling on that do, do is it an indifference is it an active like no let's not go farther what's the what's what's your finger on the pulse feel like yeah so i i try and look at it this way so the the answer to your question in broad strokes is if you were to poll people in Canada and say, should cannabis regulations mirror how alcohol is regulated, I guarantee you, you'd probably get 50, you're 60, maybe 70% agree, right. agreement on that. People would be like, oh, yeah, that's not, that's not crazy uh, because people are generally okay with how alcohol is regulated in terms of advertising and uh, marketing and branding, all of those things. Um, that said, I would actually love to see this parsed further. So you ask the question, should cannabis be legal or should it not be legal? Anyone who says no, you take their, their answers, you throw them out, and you have, let's say, 70% of the population who says cannabis should be legal. Okay, great. What should the framework look like? You give them a variety of options. I would guarantee you that of that subset, what people would want would more closely resemble what I'm advocating for in terms of um, more competitive pricing, more product uh, availability and variety, uh, in terms of uh, better marketing and branding opportunities, uh, more retail opportunities, and, and a more dynamic marketplace altogether. I guarantee you that you would probably see 60 or 70% of that group right. whose opinion really does matter. Um, agree with our viewpoint. Um, and one, I don't have any macro stats on this, but one, um, one example would be, I mean, we launched a campaign 
uh, about cannabis packaging. This would have been two years ago or less than two years ago when the regulations were first announced. And we got 1,700 consumers to email their member of parliament saying, hey, these, ridic- these, these restrictions are ridiculous. Like, why are you treating us like children? This is silly. And so I think that that gives us a pretty good estimate of where things stand because we know that the, the, the people who are consumers of this particular product think that the way in which things are set up is ridiculous. Uh, and that continues to give us our mandate to keep pushing, to keep making these arguments, and to and to keep trying to create a freer, more open, and which is ultimately a more fair marketplace for consumers and for those who are on the the production side and retail side. So I guess if we do go with the idea that generally speaking, people would favor less regulation and a more robust market. I mean, I guess the the reason why the government is not doing that is because there hasn't been enough pressure on them. Uh, you could tell me if I'm wrong on that, but I get that's a fair assumption. So I guess it's the idea to raise awareness and continue these conversations. Because uh, typically, uh, you know, governments do things people don't want to do all the time. We all know that. But when there mm-hmm. is a significant amount of pressure on governments that want to stick around, you, especially in Canada, they usually respond to that pressure. Yeah. And so if we look at the federal government, uh, the official opposition is the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party should have approached legal cannabis in the way in which conservatives are supposed to and say, okay, this is legal. Let's give as much to the private space as possible. Right. They didn't do that. In fact, they are internally split on whether cannabis should even be legal or not. So you have the opposition who is not actually providing any meaningful opposition defending consumers. And you have a government or a, the, the party in power who has enacted now all of these silly regulations but doesn't have anyone in parliament going hey guys you made a mistake they have third party groups and and advocates and activists like us doing that right. and at various instances they they do listen um but a lot of the time they don't and they don't have that internal pressure from the people sitting across the aisle from them which is a real disappointment because in my opinion that would have been a great opportunity for the conservatives to flex their free market muscle and say, okay, you guys went ahead and legalized this, but you did it in a ridiculous big government way. What are you doing? Let's deregulate this and, and empower entrepreneurs and beat the, the pro, the pro small business drum, like they do for everything else, but they didn't. Um, luckily I will say in Ontario, the Ford government, uh, I know a lot of people maybe don't like Doug Ford, uh, but when it comes to cannabis, Doug Ford has done more or less um, what I just described the conservatives federally should do. So he was given the cannabis file and he said, OK, are we going to go through with having the LCBO model like the the win liberal suggested? He said, nope, we're going to give everything over. We're going to give as much over to the private space as we can. They made a lot of mistakes in the process, uh, but there's at least that. He's he's doing what conservatives are, in theory, supposed to do uh, when it comes to uh, economic policy. And so I, I just think that federally the conservatives have dropped the ball and have really um, done nothing uh, to push on that when they could have. Um, and they should probably take some notes from what's going on in Ontario, what's going on in Alberta, uh, what's going on in, in Manitoba, right. or Saskatchewan, where – those provincial uh, those provincial premiers who are all conservatives looked at this and said, "Okay, well, yeah, we're going to have private retailers. We're not going to have the government sell this. This that's silly. Why don't we have entrepreneurs enter the space?" Very pro, very pro market arguments. Um, so yeah, that would be where where I think things have kind of gone awry in terms of why there isn't a push for change. It's because in the legislature there isn't. A big enough push for change, um, and that's why it's so important for us uh, in terms of what we do is mobilizing consumers and getting them to speak out. So that if if the opposition parties, whether they be the NDP, the Bloc, or the Conservatives, aren't going to hold the Liberals' feet to the fire on some policy mistakes, well, consumers are going to do it. And consumers are going to email their elected representatives and explain that these explain these issues. And try to drive change from from the bottom up, which is how most social change happens anyway. 
Um, and so, yeah, that's our goal. And that's kind of why we, we keep pushing um, on a variety of these issues, both in the cannabis space, but also outside of the cannabis space for all sorts of other policy areas. And our time has completely wound down here. So, uh, uh, David, let's put a finer point on everything. So in each episode, I always like to ask our guests to have the last word. So let's bring it full circle. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether marijuana legalization is working? If someone like listened to the last 30 seconds here and you wanted to, to them to remember one or two things, what is that takeaway? So I would say this. It was an incredibly bold and courageous decision for the government to legalize cannabis. And it was absolutely the right thing to do. Except as they legalized, they inserted the hand of government and, and overregulated in so many ways that it has really hampered the legal market's ability to thrive. And the ability to thrive is directly correlated with the ability to stamp out the black market. And so the answer to the question is, has legalization worked? The answer is yes, but with a giant asterisk of it should and could be a lot better. And that's where groups like the Consumer Choice Center come into play and the work that I do comes into play is trying to make the marketplace better uh, for consumers, make it more uh, consumer focused, more dynamic uh, more responsive to consumer needs. And so the uh, the in summary answer is yes, but with a giant, giant asterisk of we need to make it better and we have to keep pushing to make it better. We'll leave it there then. David Clement, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.